to speak might not make you intelligent but we're going to try to prove otherwise this is the clashing sabers podcast i am one of your hosts brandon and i'm here with my co-host he's the quokta that calls the stiffling slimy it's uh it's a very confused drew how are you tonight i am good do you not get that reference i don't should i it's uh what cad bane says to boba fett and uh boba fett says to (laughs) bo katan i think it's like it's been in every, like, since season two, it was in season two of Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, and I'm pretty sure it was in season three of Mandalorian, which we're going to be talking about oh, tonight. Man. So, okay. well, you've got to get I, more I, topical. I, I, <laughs> that's me. My, my brand is definitely being topical. <laughs> so, like, like I said, guys, tonight we are going to be talking about Mandalorian season three in our best and butts format, uh, and we will be spoiling the entire season, but that'll be after mm-hmm. the break. Uh, but before we do that, uh, DeVore has the night off tonight. He went and got married or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Ugh. Happiness Excuses. and joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us. We're two married men who find time for podcasting. And he needs right, to figure it out. The least he could out. do is squeeze in an hour or two, right? Exactly. Or three or four, depending on what the day well, is. That's true. That's true. Uh, but so we will, we'll be talking about Mandalorian in a little bit and we, we wish DeVore, uh, nothing but the best and he will be back, uh, very soon on our next episode and I can ask him what he did for May the 4th, uh, which mm-hmm. was, uh, just this last week, uh, at the time of recording, we're recording on Saturday the 6th. So Drew, what did you Star Wars for May the 4th? Gee, I wish I had something interesting to report, um, but I... There's a lot we got to choose from. I only had time to watch the first couple episodes of Visions. <coughs> Vision Season 2 came out, which has been really good so far. Um, only have caught the first six out of nine, so I still have the back third to go. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting those done. I did finish this week Cataclysm. That was really good. I'm making my way through Shatterpoint because... I just have never read it, and evidently I need to at some point. And there was another one I had finished. I finished. Did we talk about Battle of Jedha already? I don't uh, I no, we didn't line. talk about we Battle of Jedha. I listened to you guys on the the Don't Burn the Sacred Text. Is that the way you guys did a two part review on? Yeah, it was wild. Yeah, we didn't even plan it. Like most of our two parters, we planned. Like Master and Apprentice, we were both like, "There's no way we yeah. can get through this in one." But yeah, we got to an hour. And we're like only halfway through. It's ah, crazy. Cowards. Where's your three and a half hour long episodes now? Talk to Lindsay about that. I had all day. <laughs> I have no life. This is um, my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Is that your basic review of, of Battle of Jedi? It's fine. No, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. It was better than I thought it was going to be. Um, I got to think back to it because like, I feel like I've read so many things but in between here and there too. But I really, I have, this is the first audio book screenplay I think I've made my entire way through. I was going to ask you that. I, I started, I had listened to part of Dooku Jedi Lost and said, nah, this ain't for me. 
Um, I never touched Afra. I I've been thinking about Tempest Runner, but it has gotten so many negative reviews that I don't really know that it's worth it right now. And so when Battle of Jedi came up, I said, well, this is kind of required reading for the story, so I'll give it a shot. And I did, and I was really glad that I read it. I don't think I would have enjoyed it very much listening to it, honestly. But I think that having the screenplay was a really big um, added benefit. I do kind of wish, though, that they would give it a full novelization treatment. Yeah. I feel like, and maybe that's just me that I'm not... It's been a, a while since I've had to read screenplays like that, but it feels so out of place and where all the characters have to verbalize their internal deliberations and things. There's just a lot that I feel like would have been very interesting to read in a prose and poetry format rather than just listening to somebody deliver it um, through through the audio medium. But... You know, did you do both? Did you do the screenplay and uh, the audio? No, or? I did just the audio uh, drama on those. Okay. I stick with it because I feel like for for what we do uh, on Don't Burn of, of actually like reviewing the execution of these things, I feel like just reading the script isn't good enough. If you're just looking for the really? story like you were, yeah, because... Like for Tempest Runner, for example, one of the big issues that I had that really just knocked it way far down was we're jumping timelines and then also having characters that sound very, very similar to the point where when you jump timelines so quickly, you can't even remember who is who. Um, Ooh, that's kind of so- hard. Yeah, that was that was a big knock there, which I think if you've got obviously the script in front of you and you can see this is the character that's talking, it becomes a lot easier yeah. to remember it. Um, but there's there's things like uh, minor spoiler for for Battle of Jeddah, um, but the brothers of the Ninth Door, the way that they have them talk, they have an echoey sound that's very yeah. Mother Talzin esque. So like little elements like that are cool. That is written out in the in the screenplay too. Well, I say screenplay; it's not really a screenplay, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, in the in the text format, but I think it think it's described as they have like a triple layer of voices going at the same time, so that you cannot. You, it's very obvious that they're trying to disguise themselves, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so I really like the way they that. revealed that. I thought it was pretty good. I, I think that one of the things that stood out to me is that they had a they they frequently had to refer to everybody by their title and full name. And it like, like Jedi Master Creighton's son, like they would refer to him that way all the time. It's like, okay, we, I, I get it, I know who he is, but I wonder if maybe that's something that we need in the audio medium in order to ensure that the audience knows who they're listening to. Maybe that's something they took from Tempest Runner to say, hey, people are just getting lost in the vocal parts, and maybe we need to clean that up a little bit. But I feel like it stood out a lot in Battle of Jeddah, where they kept saying, ah, yes, Jedi Knight Ada Forte. It's like, uh, okay, I know who she is, guys. We don't have to keep referring to her by her entire proper Christian name. <laughs> yes, you do. When it comes to Ada Forte, you call her Ada Forte. Uh, Jedi Knight Ada Forte. Right? Jed- oh, sorry. See, I can't even get it right. This is what I'm talking about. We can't even do it, and we're doing it for real. <laughs> uh, no, I, what I was more surprised with with Battle of Jeddah as we got into Cataclysm and now reading mm-hmm. Path of Vengeance is, like you said, it is required reading. It would be very jarring to go from Convergence, which I really liked. I think Convergence is one of my favorite at out of phase two 
Um, and if you went straight from convergence into cataclysm, you could probably figure out things went south, but the impact of that story is completely gone. And, and I feel like they've, one of the things, like we've talked about this before at the end of phase one, like there was so much outside homework you had to do in order to feel like you really understood the story. I feel like these are doing a little bit better job, at least from novel to novel and with this, with this weird audio interlude here, where they've done a good job of like, well, okay, previously on the High Republic, here's a 30 second snapshot of what, everything that went wrong in the Battle of Jeddah. So I feel like that's kind of working out a little bit. Path of Vengeance does have a prologue that's probably about 20 pages long uh, that that is it's it's not well, just it's, a complete a retelling, young... but okay. it's it's a from uh, the point of view of the characters in this book, what happened them interpreting oh. the Battle of Jeddah. But it, See, it kind of that's ex- good writing. Yeah, I like it's that. it's that's really I mean, it is Kevin Scott, which, you know, we, we, we crapped on Tem- Tempest Runner, but Kevin Scott doesn't he doesn't miss very often. Um, <laughs> and I mean, mind you, like this is a 571 page book. So 20 pages out of it is not a ton. Like that's long that, for a prologue. Whoa. Yeah. Path it's of vengeance is 500 something pages. Yeah. Yeah. It's really long. Good grief. But there is a section labeled battle of Jeddah and you're getting a view from the characters in this book as the Battle of Jeddah is happening. But I think if you haven't listened to Battle of Jeddah, like you were saying with Cataclysm, you're not going to get as much out of it. Like there are references to the bigger things that are happening and you can understand, okay, this isn't going the way that in the, in this case, Marta Rowe thought this was going to go, but you don't have the impact of, oh, I know what's actually going on over there, and mm. I know how lost she really is. So, I mean, as much as we talk about, you know, having these connected stories that also have to stand alone, like, there's always going to be some dependence on prior stories and, and other stories. Sure. Like, even, you know, like... Yes, Empire Strikes Back, great standalone movie, but it doesn't work as well if you don't have a new hope to set up the relationship with Ben Kenobi. And it really doesn't even work as well if you don't have the happy ending of Return of the Jedi. Like, those other things add to the ability to enjoy that movie as great as it is on its own. So, like, I think we have to be careful about the, uh, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to read other things to read this or, or, or stuff when you're talking about a project that is about being an interconnected thing. Like if you want a one-off, that's fine. Go read princess and the scoundrel, go read dark disciple, go, you know, like there's plenty of stuff out there. If that's more what you're looking for out of star Wars books, mm-hmm. I feel like if you're going to be into the high Republic, not that you have to read every single comic, uh, because there's a ton out there or every single, you know, side story in star Wars magazine or whatever, you know, stuff is out there. But if you, you've at least got to read the basic stalwarts if you if you're going to be into this as a series i mean i'll I'll give you that i i feel like i'm sticking to the the proper novels the i guess the young adult and then as much of the comics as i can i can manage i did get a copy of the starlight stories which is the hardcover collection of the star wars insider short stories and they're pretty good they're not bad they're a little they're they're fun if you like some of the characters from light of the jedi it picks up and tells some of their stories a little bit so that was that was kind of neat So we're going to give you a second to catch up on uh, all those High Republic readings that you need to do. You have 30 seconds or so, and we'll be right back to talk about The Mandalorian. Our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy. 
What are we? What do we stand for? Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way, you'll never be lost. big enough for you to act, it'll be too late. Hang on, kid. This is the way. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are here. We are going to talk about Mandalorian Season 3 in our Best and Butts format, where we talk about three things that we did not like, think could have been improved, uh, have issues with, and then we'll get into our things that are the best of Season 3 of Mandalorian. But just for a little context, Drew, uh, before we get into our actual list, I want you to rank the seasons of Mandalorian what order from least to greatest would you put them in? Oh boy, that is tough. Um, well, I, we we talked about this briefly before season three came out, and I think I had it season two ahead of season one with Book of Boba Fett in the in between the two of them because we had trouble separating them out. I think at that point, yeah. Um, having three entries now does make it a little more interesting. I. I I hesitate to say that the second season is still the most interesting season. Like, I feel that one still had the most mystery and resolve to it. Mm-hmm. I th- while season three, as I was revisiting it in, in expectation of this conversation, it has the most cohesive story. Like, front to back, it tells, like, one continuous story and it you know each beat makes sense and things are plotted along the way you know with minor deviations here and there but all in well, all one major deviation but we'll get to well the two or three if it, the more we think about it but i i think that like there is a definite plan like the outline to this season is very clear and i like that about it like watching what i was doing is i was, I was kind of skipping through the episode like all right what is this episode called why is it called that what is it about and what is it what is it what story does it tell within its own particular constraints from credit opening to credit closing and what does it do for the story overall from episode for the first episode to the eighth episode and it's very consistent each one tells their own personal stories as well as contributes to the overall narrative as an entire uh, entity and i love that about it uh, again Small, minor deviations, one huge major deviation. Not the worst problem. And I think that when we compare that to season one, season one just setting the groundwork for how this universe operates was a very different storytelling structure. 
And I think when we go back and look at season one, it's not going to be as entertaining or interesting or as maybe even as fulfilling as the next two seasons were because of the way that they had to change the way we understood these Star Wars stories, right? We're so used to either them, if they're on, if they're on a screen in front of us, it's a movie, a cartoon, um, or like, I don't know, a music video from 1999. Or we've got the books, and, and we have the ability to take them at our own pace. We can make notes, we can go back, we can pick up wherever we want in the timeline and jump around at our, at our disposal. So... Mandalorian season one almost really shouldn't count anymore, right? (laughs) When we're ranking things because they'd never done anything like it before. It really did set a bar and a pattern by which the other shows could either follow, play with, or ignore entirely. And I'm fine with that. So if you're going to ask me, and this is usually how I interpret the question of rank these things in order, is usually which one am I first going to go back to and rewatch? And which ones am I going to rewatch last? And I'm going to watch season two again. I'll watch season three next and then season one last. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, see, I just rewatched season one. Well, I mean, season one and two uh, in prep for season three coming out. And I forgot how good season one is. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you say, you know, no, we not. might look back on it without as fond of eyes. I actually look back on it with fonder eyes because I really? can see. Yeah, like it's in seeing how big they have made the story how tight that story is in season one is extremely compelling. Hmm. Like, yes, it's a side quest thing, but it builds, like you said, it builds the universe. It builds these characters. It builds these relationships in a really, really solid way. Um, I think, honestly, I think season one might be the best written season. Uh, Season two is, is my favorite season. And I think it's the, uh, one that took the most risks and and built the story the most. And then uh, season three, like you said, its greatest attribute is the the, the tight story that it yeah. told. Um, but for me, it would be it would be two, one, three. Uh, so two being my favorite okay. and then one uh, being in the middle and then three. Uh, not because three wasn't absolutely amazing, but just I mean, it, it's Everything that season two did is going to be hard to beat. I don't know. I was trying to think of like season one. Is, is if, It's kind of like, you know, young entrepreneur struggles to expand local business. It's kind of like the whole theme of season one, if you kind of break it down into like a bizarre <laughs> okay. description. Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. But I, you're right. I do like the small focus because it's a smaller focus. It takes place basically, you know, the interesting stuff takes place in one location. It's like. Navarro is kind of where you, you need to be focused, even though we're kind of bouncing back and forth and doing different things. But, you know, it's telling the singular story of this character and how he grows and develops throughout the course of, you know, his life being turned upside down by this tiny little green frog person. Frog eating person. I mean, cannibals are as, as cannibal does. So. <laughs> well, let's get into season three and talk about our best in butts. Uh, so for our butts, we go from our least egregious to most egregious. So Drew, do you want to start or you want me to start this time? Oh man, I don't. I would really like you to start. All right, all right. <laughs> would make me feel good. So for me, uh, my butt I, I, number. Three, I'm going to make changes right away to my list right now while you're talking. Go ahead. Probably. Uh, <laughs> The Darksaber Roundabout. Um, Oh, okay. This was a problem for me uh, because the lore of the Darksaber is one of the most intriguing things in the series. And we know 
a lot about it at certain points in history, but not everything. So the story is always evolving. And that to me is fun. Like I, I enjoy the aspect of how does this thing really work? And and I actually really like that it got destroyed in the end. And I, I honestly hope it stays destroyed. I think it, it had become a, <laughs> like, I've heard people talk about, oh, you know, the Kyber crystal or, oh, they could rebuild it. And what, what they did with the, the Skywalker lightsaber. It's like, that one should have stayed broken too. Um, mm. Yes, I said it. I said it. Uh, so I, I, on that. Yeah. I do think like it being destroyed is a good thing because it was a hindrance to the unity of uh, of Mandalore. But what I don't like is how Bo-Katan got it in this season in oh, winning God. it from. No, 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 no. Ugh, winning it God. from this eyeball creature who won it from <laughs> Din feels like if it feels too much like Sabine just handing it to Bo-Katan because that's basically what Din does. He just gives an excuse for it. Like it's a situation of we're following the letter of the law and and technically yes, it is allowable. But to me a major point in, in, of emphasis this season was about how Mandalorians need to follow the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. That to me is is part of the evolution of uh, the children of the watch in particular. And so it just felt, it felt slimy. It felt gross. How Bo-Katan just, she got it in the same way that we spent last season saying she was wrong for getting it. Somebody just handing it to her. And I, I think the bigger issue for me is you could have so easily fixed this by having Din challenge Bo to single combat in that field. And you can have this short, fun fight like him and Cara Dune did in season one uh, when they first meet outside the bar. And you have Bo win the Darksaber, but you choreograph it in a way where the audience is questions if Din threw the fight, right? And so you have this question of, well, is Bo really the leader or or was she, did, did it get handed to her in in that kind of way where you're questioning it and you're questioning her and you're questioning should this actually even be something that makes us you know makes this the leader if they can win it in a way that is questionable uh to me would have just worked a whole lot better than din doing basically what he tried to do at the end of season two and just hand it to her uh it doesn't work for me but that 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 is what they discussed at the end of season two, isn't it? Because he would be like, he looks at her and says, "Fine, I yield," and tries to give it to her. Like that's what you're talking about. But he's saying, "I yield" without challenging to single combat. If they have an actual fight, I think that was the point of season two: is you can't just give know. it up. Well, but, but how is this? How is this more compelling to have Din lose it to some random eyeball creature? <laughs> Hey, that eyeball creature had a name and a mother, probably. Yeah, sure. Okay, we're going to go with that. But I'm sure we'll, we'll get a certain point of view novel from the Mandalorian series at some point, and Spider-Eye Creature will definitely get a chapter. Spider-Eye Creature, son of Mother-Eye Creature. <laughs> if Poggle the Lesser comes from Poggle the Greater, then I think this little Spider-Eye guy has a mom, too. Okay, like, logically, I guess that makes sense, but it's Perfect kind point. of like... It's kind of like how uh, how Bo got the dark saber, and it just doesn't feel <laughs> right. I mean, they, they, this was a corner that that was painted into. That is for sure. But I feel like this is probably the best and cleanest and easiest way to do it because I don't like your. I, I do not care for the idea of a 
never-ending, um, always uncertain, did this really work out the way it was supposed to work out? Uh, because if should any of the characters have had the exact same impression as the audience under that scenario, then you have an entire rule that is suspect to suspicion and doubt and mistrust, and I don't think that's the direction they wanted to do. They, season three is all about bringing the culture together, right? Reunifying the people, and they know from a creative standpoint that they, they know that half of the known Mandalorian population is going to follow the bearer of the Darksaber. So, I, I mean, definitely that was the role, the role that they wanted Bo-Katan to fill from a character perspective. They wanted her to be in charge. They didn't want Din to be in charge. That would make him less cool of a gunslinger, and we wouldn't have as many cool adventures for him to go on with Grogu next year. But I mean, it's not a great solution. I think it is the the right solution, though, the way that they did it. Like, maybe they could have done it in a more climactic fashion, maybe towards the end in a, in a Moff Gideon Returns fight kind of style where he beats Mando and then Bo-Katan beats Gideon once and for all. I don't know. Something like that. But I don't have a problem with the spider guy as much as, I guess, the rest of the world does. I like the spider guy in and of himself, and I, I liked all and then, of. Then, uh, the sp- uh, don't don't disparage his uh, his very short particular rule of the planet Mandalore. You know, <laughs> he didn't That's know fair. what he had That's until fair. it was gone. Poor thing. So, what do you have for your right, number three? Okay, keep in mind this list is going to be ever evolving. So, don't hold me to opinions espoused tonight. You know, past recording time, please. My number three is the problem of the generic beast issue. There mm. are at least three different events around generic monsters in this show. And they're fine, but it's a little tried at this point. It's, it feels a lot like when we don't know how else to move the action along, have something giant come out and try and eat someone, right? You think about towards the beginning of the show where they're on, I guess it's the very opening of the first episode, The Apostate, where the armorer is kind of baptizing the the Vizsla kid, I think, right? And the giant monster pops out and it takes Mandalorian arriving in the, his N1 fighter to to shoot it and wave it off so that the, the, they can continue their day. Then you have the episode where the foundling is actually captured by the flying beast and taken to its nest high atop a mountaintop. And then last you have in the Spies episode where they go back to Planet Mandalore and they're chilling on the sand skimmer. They're looking for the entrance to the underground forge. And again, generic beast number three for the year pops out of nowhere and changes their plans. So it's getting to be a little bit of a red flag from a, a, a storytelling and writing perspective to say, when all else seems to be going right, attack them with a giant thing. And it's just getting a little boring at this point for me. I think that's valid. I think it it wouldn't be such a glaring issue if you didn't have the two beasts on the same planet, uh, which we don't get a name for, the, the planet the Mandalorians are on. Right. And then in the episode on Mandalore where you have the big monster, it just is, like you said, it's a very convenient way to get them to go underground when they were already right. there and apparently knew where the Great Forge was, so they could have just stopped and gone, hey, we need to go down here. Exactly. Like, in the first episode, Bo-Katan says she knows where the Forge is. It's underneath the capital city of something. And when they land on the planet, I guess they land 
we'll talk about Mandalore a little bit more as a planet in a little bit, but it was just very confusing why we had to go through this very brief exercise of, oh no, we're under attack from giant monster. Let's change plans when really it's not change plans. Let's just continue plans. It almost felt like a boss fight in a video game. They just had yeah. to clear a checkpoint kind of thing. I, th- I think that Star Wars in general has a giant generic beast problem these days. Um, I know there's discord around Jedi, the new game, whose name I can't remember. Is it Jedi Survivor? Survivor. Okay. Yeah. Ton of fun, but Survivor and the first one, Jedi Fallen Order, seem to have this issue of, when in doubt, fling, monst- fling creatures and animals at the player for them to kill. And it's just kind of like, is there really no other option? Now, I'm not a you know animal-loving kind of guy personally i don't care but i just from a from a you're telling me in a galaxy far far away which has such a wide variety of of species and sentient creatures and non-sentient creatures and plants that eat people and things we're just going to rely on the same kind of trope of let's just throw a bigger and meaner monster at them Uh, we can do better than that now i know that creatures have a home in star wars you know the dianaga from a new hope You've got the Exo Slug thing from Empire Strikes Back. You've got the Rancor, which is really cool. I mean, even stuff in like the prequel trilogy had good monsters up into Attack of the Clones. Sorry, uh, Nexu what? and uh, no. Mr. Ackley and the third one. What's the third one? Uh, I can't remember. Reek, yes. Okay. Let's just yes. let the record show that I, I knew all three of those names before you got any of them in. I mean, I knew Nexu and Ackley. I always forget the Reek's name. <laughs> I just feel like we're, we're kind of falling into a rut. And we're not falling into a rut. We are living at the bottom of the rut. Well, and I think, you know, you have the Crate Dragon in Season 2 that does such an amazing job of introducing that season. And it's executed That's so well. That's a and good it point. It looks so good. It means something. It means something. So I think they took the wrong lesson from that of ooh big monster get big reaction when Good that's not what the audience is trying to tell him when we when we're saying we love this episode it's the narrative around it the the crate dragon could have been 3 feet big and if you tell that same story it's you know still compelling whereas here it's it's a situation of just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it and yes right you can do these big, great monsters and you can make it look better than you've ever been able to make it look before. But what does that mean if we don't care about the monster or the people mm-hmm. who are fighting? Mm-hmm. And and really, it just, it, it wasn't compelling in the season. So yeah, and no, I definitely no. think you're you're on, on track Did, there. What else in season two? Are there other big monsters in season two? Like I remember this, there's the, the episode with the spiders. Yeah, there's the spiders, ice, um, ice spiders, which. But again, those bad. are. But that is a, a situation where you have you know uh, an exposition on Grogu's immaturity and his lack of understanding of the world and the consequences ah. that that causes. Right, like there's purpose to it, whereas here, nobody learns a lesson from the monsters it just gets right. them from point a to point like it it allows din to come in in a really badass way at first yeah. and then it forces the mandalorians to learn to work together which like, you know you could have done in a million other ways and even like they bring the bird things back and then do mm-hmm. nothing with them the rest of the season well they eat them 
later on. That's, Do they? I thought there was something else on those spits. <laughs> I thought there was like a lizard. Oh, I don't know. I just kind of just assume. I, yeah. I mean, silly me. I, I use the same. I, I try to interpret the visual language of the of the one episode based on what had just come before. It was like, hey, we've got three of these giant bird things. Figure out something to do with them. And they're like, well, <laughs> flash forward 24 hours and they're turning something meaty over a fire. So that's that's fair. That that even still, that, that like, who not cares? so bad. I don't mind that episode with the bird ones as much because they're at least being used to tell a story like they're they're creating a situation that will result in some things and they're doing that using the mechanism of the kid is kidnapped by a mama bird the mama bird takes the kid back to her own kids feeds it to the kids the kids don't really do a good job of eating the dinner that the parent made i can sympathize with the parent bird and then everybody kills the birds i don't it's not awesome, but it's at least it's being used in a way in which to tell a particular story about how these the characters are going to build up trust, especially with uh, Bo-Katan, because that episode does a lot of character work. Like, you know, that's the same episode where Grogu has to demonstrate his force abilities in front of the Mandalorian covert. Uh, it's the same one where he, because of the forge hypnosis, I'm going to say, is able to recall more of his escape from Order 66. And it's the one where the armorer forges a new piece of armor for Grogu and Bo-Katan, um, adopting both of them into you know the, the trainee program of the Children of the Way. And she confesses, Bo-Katan sees the mythosaur on the wall. You know, she's explaining to the armorer, said, what would you say if somebody saw one of these things? And the armorer was like, that would be amazing, but really cool. So there's there's awesome character work done within that particular episode. So at least they did, they used the animal creatures in that one. But like you said, the season kicks off with, how can we make the most dramatic entrance possible? Ah, big lizard thing to blow up. And then, like we talked about during the Spies episode, it's like, how do we force these characters underground before they're ready to be underground. Ah, throw a big monster at them. Yeah. I do like that at the end of the finale episode, we see Ragnar getting baptized again. Uh, it, it felt like an acknowledgement of like, we didn't forget that this happened kind of thing, <laughs> which is not something Star Wars always does a great job about. Uh, sometimes yeah. things get lost for 12 to 15 years, such as Zillow Beast and, and things of that nature. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 So it was, it was nice okay. to see that. But like, again, yeah. did we... Did we need it? No. Like if if well, that. Well, no, no, no. Hold on. Let me let me finish. Which, which part if, are you talking about? Did we need what? Did we need that? You both. said that. What does that define? So I'm saying, do we need that as a story point? Do we need to have the uh, lizard dragon thing attack so that Ragnar oh, doesn't get oh, baptized? Oh, oh, oh. So that the, at the end we see him get baptized. If you take that whole little plot point out, does it change anything in the season? Not really. Uh, it is nice to see him, you know, after Paz, uh, gives his life and everything still continue on to be a Mandalorian and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you lose anything of consequence if you don't have that in here. So there is a, a real world analogy to that kind of thing of like, let's just make sure we get this right. <laughs> I don't know if anybody, this is for exactly three people on planet earth, but when Barack Obama was first sworn in as president back in, in January of 2009, the chief justice read the oath of office incorrectly. 
and so they when when obama was repeating after him he stopped and was like those aren't the right words but i'm gonna go with it anyway and then after the ceremonies were done they went underground and and did it for real with the chief justice a second time i don't know if anybody knew that but that's the real world political analogy <laughs> pretty, if cool, you, pretty cool if you were aware of that congrats you and me are the loneliest people on planet earth well you said three people so there's one more of you out there they're the one laughing at us <laughs> all right well speaking of things that i think are supposed to make you laugh but just number two didn't work for me Uh-oh. i hate the little looney tunes circle at the end of this the of the eighth <laughs> episode i just i don't like it it doesn't fit the moment because it's like supposed to be a comedic thing in a moment of let's no that is a looney tunes comedy like trope of of old shows would do that on like old sitcoms would do that you never see that happen on a drama and it's this moment of I'm pure sorry. joy is, is this the show that has jack black in it for like 25 oh minutes? You, we're gonna get into that we're gonna talk about him later too don't worry <laughs> i hear you i understand there are two things to, that i would suggest you keep in mind number one george lucas loves stupid wipes like that a new hope is full of them full but not of, at the end not at the end actually honestly they are because that is how they transition if you think about it, the end of a new hope is the um, uh, medal ceremony for the heroes right it's and it has the main cast standing on the podium and it irises in to the credits so it yes is, but it, in it a continuous flow it, it doesn't stop it doesn't okay and in fairness it it is into the dead center of the screen in a new hope yes. whereas in mando it goes to it's it zooms in and it's like oh hey look at this cute guy over here yep. let's move to the left a little bit so number one a new hope full of dumb wipes like that there's star wipes there's in and out wipes there it's it's bad they're everywhere but number two i think this is telling us something i think this is the end of mandalorian like You'll see him pop up in Ahsoka, and you'll see him pop up in other things. I don't think we're we may not see a Mandalorian season four. Oh, you you're wrong there. John Favreau has already said he's written it. Well, yeah, that's exactly what they said when they were going to do the show, The Rangers of the New Republic. This has strong, strong series finale vibes, and it's it's a long shot. It is a long shot, but this could absolutely be the last time for a while. How about that? Can we, like. I don't think we'll get season four for like four or five years. Oh no, not that long. Wild. I think we'll. I think we'll get it twenty twenty five. But even still, okay. Let's let's play ask off of the, that. Ask the Lando story about that one. How's yeah, that? well, how's they a, have the actors in place here. How's droids a Star Wars story coming? <laughs> okay, but you're talking about projects that were just announced and never actually happened versus a project that is currently happening and they're talking about a culmination movie for said project i, I, I think that is the next we may not see din Djarin on screen until that movie mm, I, you are a hundred percent wrong on that and i'm definitely <laughs> saving this but even still let's play let's play off that I, hypothetical trying to give it right some kind of credit because it is the craziest decision ever made was that weird iris in if that is the last shot that you have of the Mandalorian, the <laughs> series, the crazy one. <laughs> it to- it just doesn't work. I love it, it. I love season it. or excuse me, episode eight is fantastic. Like there's so much of the finale that is just like it's near perfect to me, and we'll get into more reasons why later. But 
that just it, it's like the episode ends and I just have this weird like aftertaste in my mouth. I'm just like I just like I enjoyed the meal, but I don't like this taste I have in my mouth right now. Like I need a mint. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> That's how I feel at the end of it. And it's required. It's nothing. It's nothing in depth. There's nothing super critical about it. I don't have some soliloquy on what would have worked better. I just don't like it. That's it. Hmm. No, I I get it. You are not alone. It is bizarre. It is weird. It was a choice. And I wonder, I wonder if there's some like, it's an homage to something or it's one of Rick Fumiyawa's favorite ways to end it. I can't. There has I, I, to be an explanation, right? There's just gotta be. <laughs> there being an explanation and it being a good explanation are not the same thing. That That is true. I will give you that. But I, I, it can't be an accident. Can you imagine it was like like 24 hours before the file was uploaded to the Disney Plus service and they're like, holy crap, we didn't write an ending. Like, we don't know how to transition from this to the credits. Like, uh, quick, somebody go into After Effects and apply an Iris out thing. There it is. Done. Yeah. (laughs) Control S, save. (laughs) They were in Google Slides just messing around with stuff. Really, it looks, it it does look like that. It does stand out wildly. It's bad. And if it happened in, you know, the seventh episode or the sixth episode or something like that where... It was like, all right, cool. We've got something coming after it, but that's the last shot we're gonna sit with. <laughs> there is for a no while. episode where that would be okay. There's no episode no, where it would be okay. There are episodes where it doesn't make my list of the worst things in season three. All right, that's a fair point. I'll give you that. So I, ooh, it is. It was a choice, man. It was a choice. What is your choice for number two? Okay, I'm gonna start small and go way out on a limb. So come along with me for a journey. Do you remember in the episode with Space Jack Black when at the very end it's Bo-Katan versus Axe Woves uh, basically for control of leadership of, I don't know what the group is called, just like the mercenaries, the Mando Mercs. I don't know if they have a real name, so I may refer to them as the other Night Owls by accident, so apologies if that bothers you. The Evening Owls. Oh, I like that. There's a band name if I ever heard one. Um, (laughs) There is no way the two of them go at it that hard and come away without a single bruise on their face. Okay. There's just simply, like, they are slamming each other into the ships, into the ground, full, like, armored gauntlet punches into the nose and not a, a drop of blood. Um, Axe Wolves fires a missile at her and she dodges it, and the rest of the gang is like, that was really close, bud. Um, I feel like there's the show has a problem with the way it's depicting violence, which is a weird thing to say out loud. But here's, I feel like they're trying to tow a kid-friendly line this year that wasn't necessarily as important in previous years. Like, there's not a lot... I, I can't really think of too much gratuitous violence within, within the past two seasons of it, but I can at least remember like at the end of season one when Din is ready to give up, right? He's been beaten up and blasted around and he's saved by IG-11 and IG-11 removes his helmet and you can tell he's been in a fight, right? He looks, he's sweaty, he's disgusting, he's bleeding. Um, It is clear that he's been injured. I don't really know that happens again very often, if at all, and season three seems to be the worst offender of this. But here's kind of why why I think this is a, a slight issue. Not that I'm advocating for the mindless blood and guts of like a Quentin Tarantino movie dumbed down into a Disney plus show. It's not what I'm asking for, 
But I have a feeling it's having an effect on the audience in the opposite direction. In that, because we're not seeing our heroes suffer, it's leading to greater expectations of things going worse for them in the future. Like, I think that there, leading up to the end of season three, there was a certain amount of bloodlust within the audience that says, I can't wait to see who dies, right? We were kind of waiting to see which character would be out, whether contractual reasons and the actor or actress was no longer interested in being involved or they couldn't come to agreement, whatever, or the character dies for a story's sake. A lot of people, self-included, were looking forward to seeing what was going to change for these characters. Because honestly, up until that point, no one had been in any real danger. And when the characters are not in real danger, the stakes feel a whole lot less important, right? The, the need to fight harder, to fight stronger, to persevere through adverse circumstances doesn't matter if there are no adverse circumstances to overcome. Now, Din gets into a bit of a struggle in the last episode where he's fighting the, the white armor Beskar troopers. I think those guys are Beskar stormtroopers. It's very hard for me to tell anymore. He's definitely struggling as he fights them one by one, like when he's going down the corridor, taking the shields down one at a time. But it's, it's very different when you don't see it on them. Like, every character is fully armored head to toe for the entirety of their fights. And I get why, like, story-wise, it makes sense why they're doing that. But that has an effect on the audience, and it disassociates us from the struggles that they're going through. And when that happened, and maybe it's just something about 2023 in particular, but these past weeks, eight weeks, for these different eight episodes, it definitely felt like the discourse was like, somebody's going to bite the bullet. Something's got to happen, because we haven't seen these guys really struggle yet. And I feel like that's kind of an issue. Like, I'm a. The issue is, we are developing a sense of bloodlust, where we want somebody to die. We don't care why. We just need something to kind of jazz things up and change it around. When even like, there's no real precedence for that. Like, season one ends in a way where the heroes make it out alive, and and they did the good thing. Season two does the same thing. They overcome the evil. They get what they needed to get done. Grogu's returned to the Jedi, and things are good. Uh, there's some unresolved questions absolutely but it's not like they had to lose somebody along the way so there's this weird developing sense of somebody's got to go and i feel like part of the reason is because we're not seeing them struggle against things and we're waiting for something to change does that make sense no it makes total sense uh my my counter argument to that would be paz vizsla I, I know you're thinking, well, it's not an armored Bo-Katan, Din Djarin character dying, but, I mean, it is a pretty, in terms of Star Wars deaths, it's a pretty gruesome one. Like, they're they're stabbing him pretty brutally. Yeah, it, there's, yeah, okay, it's, it, that one is rough, I'll give you that. But in a world where Darth Maul gets cut in half and comes back to life with giant mechanical spider legs, I mean, what happened to him... What happened to Paz Vizsla could probably just be written off in an easy way. If they really want, if George Lucas was like, you've got to bring him back, he's my favorite character I've ever seen, then they would come up with a, a way where, you know, a cut shot back to him on the landing pad, and he gets, you know, he struggles to stand up, and he rips off his helmet, and he says, I am the way, or something. I don't know what. But it's not outside the realm. That would be Star terrible. Wars. Please don't do it that way. <laughs> It, but, I mean, we're talking about in a universe where the Emperor fell down the shaft of the Death Star and it exploded into a billion tiny little bits and pieces. And then, literally, somehow, Palpatine has returned. But, see, that's so different not, because he transferred his essence okay, to a clone stop. body of himself. 
<laughs> even still, man, saying it out loud is even worse than thinking about it. I mean, Continue. it is weird. It, no, it is weird that in Star Wars, you know, truly no one's ever really gone. And that's not always a great thing. No, <laughs> you know it's what not. I mean? It's like, really sometimes not. Permadeath is a thing, like, for a reason. Like, and, and no one's going to ever make the argument that the Legends books were leaps and bounds ahead in quality in terms of what we're getting today. But when they killed Chewbacca, it changed the way you look wow, at the spoilers. books after that. Oh, so yeah, spoilers for something that happened like 30 years ago or something, guys, and doesn't count anymore, clearly. Um, they dropped a moon on him, and it changed the way you looked at the rest of his books because suddenly the gloves were off, nobody was safe, and you didn't know who was going to make it out. And while the big three main characters were kind of always, you know, they, I know that originally they had wanted to kill, again, spoilers for the end of the New Jedi Order series, a book series that ended in like 2002. You know, the end of the series was supposed to result in the death of Luke Skywalker, but that was vetoed by George Lucas himself. So those characters have always kind of been like off limits. But everybody around them was fair game, and they would come and go in, in some very tragic ways. And it was one of the things that made those series interesting, is the fact that you didn't really know what was going to happen next. With the guys in Mandalorian... I feel like for most of these seasons, you can be pretty sure that at least everybody may not get their way, but they're all going to make it out at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think that's a valid criticism. Uh, I like the angle of them not looking injured during the fights more than I like the somebody needs to die thing, because yeah. I do think somebody needs to die becomes a crutch. And I think... We expect that, and, and the, the bloodlust you're talking about is more our expectations of that has to happen in a story. And we've been conditioned to it now. To, yes, of like yes. The quality television that we've gotten, especially over the past 10 years, you look at something like The Sopranos, you look at something like Game of Thrones, where you, you, you weren't going to live more than 15 pages in that book series. Like, the end of season one, the message isn't that the good person you know always triumphs in the end, it's like, the powerful person triumphs in the end. It's like, oh, this is a different storytelling type. And people really liked that. There's something interesting and something different about that. And, 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 and that kind of mentality is already present in the viewing audience of the Star Wars universe. And we are starting, as a collective audience, we are starting to impute those expectations upon a world which has no inclination it wants to play by those rules. And that's going to set us, us up for some stupid failure. So please. Counter argument uh, to that would be the High Republic, which I know not everybody watching oh, Mandalorian is reading High Republic, but the High Republic did take the gloves off when it came to these people are going to die. That's a good uh, point. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that because there are definitely some people that who bite it that you wish didn't. And there are some people who haven't died yet that you kind of wish would. <laughs> right. And, and, and even like Rogue One, you know, they all mm. die, which was a shock to to even the director when Kathleen Kennedy was like, yeah, kill them all. That's the, the right ending. Uh, so, but it's about the storytelling of it. And so I think in a smaller way, you can fix this problem by, like you were saying, actually showing consequences of the fight and not just having it be, you know, we're punching each other with solid Beskar that a lightsaber and a blaster cannot uh, get through, but is not exactly. going to break our nose or give us a black eye or whatever and it doesn't even have to be a lot like you could just do a little bit of a visual reference of like right this has happened we don't need to see somebody with well, their face swollen and stuff you know like, like it's simple and then a limp 
you know? Exactly. Like, you exactly. remember in, in Book of Boba Fett when when Din uses the, the Darksaber when he's trying to bring in whatever bounty he's after, he like burns himself with his leg and then runs away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Show some consequences for actions would be nice. Yeah. I would just say be careful with the killing people thing because it it can become a crutch very easily. And part of why it works in Rogue One and part of why it works in the High Republic is because of the way that it was executed. So I'm happy with the fact that all of our major characters made it out of this season. I'm not saying I'm completely against somebody dying in a future season. Right. But I think to fix the bigger problem that you're talking about, yeah, just showing consequences for actions is is a big one. It'd and be a, it'd be a good start. I think there's some there should be some consequences for my number one because um, Lizzo and Jack Black are just terrible. <gasps> no, I'm sorry. No, the episode Boo as man, the episode as a whole, but these two characters in particular are my least favorite episode of Mandalorian wow. today. Wow. Wait, worst episode? Your least favorite episode least of the favorite entire show? Of the entire, yes. Out of all not, three seasons. Out of all three seasons. I'm not saying the worst because that that gives the inclination to that I don't like it. And it's not that I don't like it. I just don't think it fit with the <laughs> clean, tight story that we were talking about earlier. I think these two cameos in particular, but the greater, we're going to have a whole bunch of cameos in this episode thing, takes you out of it completely. Uh, the reason I didn't just say cameos in this episode is I think that if Jack Black and Lizzo were not in this episode, <laughs> the Christopher Lloyd appearance would would have been allowable. It would have been, oh, that's cool, like Christopher Lloyd's in there. But when you have, first of all, Lizzo... And I'm, I'm, I want to make this clear. I'm very happy for her that she got to be in Star Wars and she's a big Star Wars fan and all of that stuff. It is nothing personal against her. She's not an actress. Like, her performance is wooden. Uh, I don't believe the relationship with Jack Black. Jack Black is, I mean, he's Jack Black, but in Jack this Black case, it's not. the time a, of his life. But in this case, Jack Black being Jack Black is not a good thing. Because it takes oh, me out okay. of the episode, and there's very, very little to pull me back in after. Like, I spent no, most no. of my Time first out. watch of Time that out. episode. Stop, 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 stop. Because my number three best is the Jack Black episode. <laughs> this was oh. one of my one of the highlights for me because it was so bizarre and fun is it good yeah probably not but is it that same kind of like silly we're playing dress up and it's amazing vibe a hundred percent and you know what every character gets into it on that episode even din has some allegedly comedic lines where he's like you had me at battle droids and it was like me too so it really it worked for him because i think at least he's been in stuff before and he knows that there's a certain level that you can't go beyond before it gets cartoonishly bad and he's he's like look he's not over the line but he is standing on top of the line for sure i mean he is he's kicking the line along at the very he least is dancing up and down that line and he is doing he has having so much i rewatched like all of his scenes again in preparation for this and they're fun they're entertaining to watch you know you can't not watch them when they're on 
Mm. Lizzo could stand some acting lessons. No problem. She's got time. When they bring them all back for the Ahsoka show, it's going to be great. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> They're the crux of the Mandalorian finale uh, movie. It's, what it's if, all about like, them. That's where Thrawn has been hiding this entire time. Oh, oh, bizarre what if Jack Black's character is Ezra? <laughs> How can that happen when he's already Snoke? I'm going to say that because Darth Maul had spider legs, anything's possible. Dream big. Okay. Okay. I, I, they're standing out like, so, that whole episode is like, what are we doing? Like, I don't know if somebody lost a bet when they were drafting that particular episode or what, because the Christopher Lloyd cameo is, is kind of my least favorite part of that one. It's like, no, it's okay. You don't have, you don't have to be in this. You don't need to be in this because it's kind of weird that like no one's going to know who he is like unless you're of a certain age or higher but if you're of that age and, and higher you pro i didn't realize it was lizzo it's <laughs> like mm. i don't know who she is she's just you know somebody that they brought in i was like and then when the credits were, i was like oh yeah okay i can see it now now jack black is timeless for uh, for all generations so there's really no problem with that i think christopher lloyd works because the the casting fits the character like you you have an old yeah. man who's disgruntled with the way things are that's fine uh jack black i get i get you wanting to go a comedic route and i don't have a problem with a comedic episode i don't have a problem with what they were trying to do in this episode I just don't think Jack Black and Lizzo were the ones to do it. I think Jack Black is way too over the top uh, when... Uh-uh, come on. I think, like I said, Lizzo's acting is absolutely t- horrendous. Like, it's just unwatchably bad. Uh, and and this is from someone who, before she went crazy, uh, argued for Gina Carano's acting. So, like, if I'm yes, saying it's bad... Uh, then it, it's it's bad, and and I don't want Star Wars to become cameo land. Like I, I, I it really really worries me. Like when you have a stormtrooper <sighs> ah, here, there, like know. Daniel Craig, when you can as a Star Wars fan watch it go, oh yeah, that's Daniel Craig in that in that outfit, and the person next to you is like, wow, you like Star Wars way too much. Uh, <laughs> that's fine, it, but it, it this is so important to the plot, and it's so noticeable that it is just not a good mix I don't know. at all. I, I think you just need to take a deep breath and enjoy the ride on that particular one. I mean, the same series, like this This season has had more like weird cameo appearances than I can remember. Like Tim Robbins shows up on Coruscant as a commanding officer for the, the New Republic. That took me way off guard. I was not expecting him to be in this. But, but if you think about it, like Book of Boba Fett had... Um, Oh, I just lost his name. Oh, my gosh. The guy who plays Machete, I can't remember his name, was in there as the Rancor Keeper, basically. Um, The Obi-Wan Kenobi show had Flea, the bass player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as the guy who kidnaps Leia. This is what I'm talking about. I I thought did a really good job, personally. (laughs) It's a really compelling character. He's a creepo. It worked. So, I don't know. you're, You're right that they're occurring more and more frequently, and... It could definitely go off the rails, but I mean, I think that one, that episode was meant to be fun. It was meant to be, you know, a jaunty time through the fields as they, you know, shoot battle droids in the face again and kick them really, really hard. 
I did I like the kicking the droids That was part. pretty satisfying. But it? also, that felt like a regression of, of his character. Yes. Like, I... Yes. Which I think is part of the point. <laughs> but but then later in the, the season, you have him calling R5 buddy, and it's just like, wait a minute, you... Like, I get that battle These droids, the- and he's finally able to distinguish between battle droids and, uh, you know, other droids and, and whatever, but <laughs> it's still... Yeah, it just seems unnecessary. Like I the mean, whole these thing, are the droids that killed his family when he was a kid. I so, I get it. I get it. There's definitely some glee that he took. It is a little. There is a little troubling characterization going on in there. Like where it's okay to beat up on people when they look like people you used to not like. It's like, well, that has really sad implications in modern America. Let's not go that particular. Yeah. Way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Give us your number one. What's your least what favorite a, thing about what season a three? Weird show. This one was for us, isn't it? I do not like the surface of Mandalore at all. Um, None of it looks good. None of it makes good sense. I don't understand what's going on in this planet. And that might be on purpose, but I don't feel like it is. Um, The entire atmosphere is this ruinous cloud of death and confusion where you can't pass communications through it, yet somehow Moff Gideon gets transmission out from his secret base off of Mandalore out to the rest of the shadow council. That was weird, but it's just not clear. Like the rules are around this planet, like what's going on. Yes. It's habitable. It's breathable air. They land their, their, their settling party on like the flattest, cleanest, smoothest surface you've ever seen in this show. But then just outside of like 20 feet of them is the most jagged, rocky mountainous terrain they could possibly design. And I wonder if this goes to like, I know there were cinematography issues and production questions around like the Obi-Wan Kenobi show and why, why things just looked and felt flat. And I think the surface of Mandalore fell into that same bucket. I don't know if this is a problem with the volume or the way that they're using it or something, but the whole, every time somebody was on the surface planet, the surface of Mandalore, it didn't look like it was supposed to be communicating desolate, loneliness, abandonment. It looked like it was trying to communicate boring and ugly. And I don't really understand why that was the way it was supposed to be going. For a planet that everyone has been spending all this much effort to either get back to or to hide in, I don't understand why it just couldn't look like something that people would spend time on. I, I don't really know the best way to put it because even when they go underground, the 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 difference between the underground caverns that Din and R5 explore at the beginning of the show and then Bo-Katan has to come and rescue him from looks so vastly different from the world that they get sucked into in, in the end of it. And I don't think it's just a simple difference of that's where the Imperial base was hidden because if the Imperial base is hidden and the rest of it looks that good, then it's not very hidden, is it? Like yeah. there's some weird discrepancy between the way that the design changed from the beginning of the, the season to the end of the season. And I don't know that I have like the, the critical language and tools in my personal toolbox to understand why things look and feel the way that they do. I, I feel like I can handle language uh, dis- description a little better, but visually there's something just so unappealing and uninteresting in the homeland of what should be the most interesting planet that they go to. You know what I mean? Do you remember like when we were at Celebration though and like they, they showed us the trailer 
and they had like the the first time we saw the ruins of the city like somebody was we and i don't know that we even knew which character was flying in but there was clearly a shot out of their front window and you saw like the 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 spires that were broken yeah. and clearly bombed out thing i don't we never got anything that good in the show where was the the character that the characterization of the planet in that trailer like and maybe that poisoned the well for me personally because i was expecting more of that and i just don't feel like we got it well i think it it worked for me because when when we went down and we saw you know where the domes were I could I, I I actually like literally the first time seeing it like saw Clone Wars over top of it. You know, it was like one of those uh flashbacks that characters will have where you like have like a right. ghost version of the old thing there. That's like actually what I saw when I was watching it. And so like that aspect worked for me. I think the the part that's confusing is what is Mandalore as a planet, right? Like we we have this wor- or this galaxy where each planet has this it, its own unique <laughs> that's identity, true. right? That's true. A, a, a planet and, is one biome. That's all right. that I get. So, but you've had Mandalore and in in Rebels or in uh, Clone Wars, we saw it, you know, in the domes in this bustling metropolis, which we obviously see destroyed in Mandalorian. But then in uh in in rebels it's a barren wasteland and then now Mm. there's these shards coming up from the bombing like i just i don't get how they all fit together now i do like the 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 farms that they the the main surviving mandalorian started but i guess for me the issue with the planet itself is more the inconsistency that you pointed out there of yeah well you can have this imperial base here but everything's destroyed and the atmosphere is breathable but no it's not but yes it is but you know there's no mandalorians here we have no life scans to there are mandalorians here and they were never able to (laughs) this is a super smart uh group of people but they were never able to figure out how to get communications or you know fly off planet or all of these different things that when you think about it in the context of, of the larger thing don't, doesn't make it doesn't a lot really of sense. It doesn't really add up. No. Yeah. That, that, no, 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 no. Yeah. Totally valid. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. All right. So uh, let's get into our best things. And that will lead me to my number three, which number actually, three. it's funny, goes with uh, what you were mentioning about the trailer not delivering on, on what it said it was going to, because I called this stand and deliver, because they led <laughs> us to believe that this uh, season was going to be about reuniting the uh, Mandalorians, and they delivered on that. Yeah, and out. Yeah, I, I listen, I don't mind a bait and switch from time to time, but sometimes it's nice to be told, hey, this is the story we're going to tell you. And then we get that story. Uh, it might not be perfect. It might not be exactly what we thought, but it is a really solid story. And for me personally, I'm excited that the speculation about Bo-Katan being the antagonist were wrong. Uh, I really like using the armor and bow as the standard bears for their tribes. And I think that was a really good move to have both of these characters uh, be able to coexist in, you know, leadership roles in the same way. Um, I think, you know, yes, this did sideline Din a good bit, but I feel like that's okay because this story needed to happen for him and Grogu 
to be able to have the freedom to move forward into future seasons. And, you know, because of what happened, we're able to get that ending uh, where, you know, he can sit on his front porch and watch Grogu, uh, you know, torture frogs. And (laughs) we're going to be able to see him go on future adventures and stuff. Whereas if you didn't take this season to clear up the Mandalorian uh, issue, we'll say, of, you know, what really is going on with the Mandalorians, that would have been this cloud hanging over the head of this show for for however long it continues on into the end. And I feel like now we have this story about the reuniting of the Mandalorians and we can kind of use the Mandalorians as a, uh, a Boba Fett or an Ahsoka where you can bring them into the show when it is beneficial to the story. You can have a really killer episode with them, maybe even a couple episodes with them, change the game, but you don't have to have it be all about them. And I think it was a really intelligent, uh, intelligent thing to do to tell us we were getting this story that many of us have been craving since the beginning of the series when we went, well, hold on, what Din's saying about Mandalorians doesn't line up with what we've gotten about Mandalorians before. And, uh, like, it was a a compelling cloud, but it was a cloud over the head of, of season one and season two where it's like, we keep getting all this information about Mandalorians and not all of it lines up. And so I think this was a necessary thing. And I think letting the fans know, hey, we're going to give you the story you've been asking for and we're not going to to bait and switch you. We're not going to put, you know, the lightsaber in Finn's hand on the poster and then raise the actual Jedi in the movie. We're going to give you something that we said we're going to give you. Uh, it just it, I'm, I'm I really like that. It, it was great. refreshing. Do you feel like that there is any remaining mystery to any of this stuff like you know, you come out of season one and you get the last shot is actually the big mystery. It's like, why does Moff Gideon have the Darksaber? Number two, or season two ends with basically what happens now to these warring fa- factions of Mandalorians? Do you feel like there's any unresolved issues ending season three here? Not anything that stands out to me. I think that they can create questions. I think you can go sure. back to Mandalore and have, you know, Bo-Katan in the armor having difficulty figuring out how to actually lead the planet together. Um, I think you could, you know, throw Boba Fett in the mix and, and mess stuff up one way or another because his status as Mandalorian yeah. is always kind of questionable. It's a little uh, iffy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I think you can create them, but I've said since the season ended, like, I feel like this was the end of book one of The Mandalorian. You know, like, I I think it would be really cool if season four comes out and it's the start of book two of The Mandalorian and we start, like, chapter one over again kind of thing. Oh, that Uh, would be interesting. I understand. Because it just, it feels like this was the ending of a concise story. And, and, And the... If we look at the hero's journey aspect of it, you know, Din was able to take the elixir of uh, into his his old world and show the people how to live together and survive together because he figured out how to do that working with so many different people for a higher purpose of saving Grogu and getting Grogu to where he needed to be and finding himself in that. And so, you know, we talked about earlier, you mentioned like this might be the end of Mandalorian, which besides the fact that you were wrong, if you were right. 
it would be very, very satisfying as an ending to the series to me. And it, w- it would be really cool if it is the end of the series, if they had like this one particular visual indicator that that is what it was. Wouldn't that be cool to have? Yeah, like maybe like a uh, left swipe or right swipe or just a I was thinking about a, car- st- car- a cartoon pig popping out saying, biddy, 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 that's all, folks. That Would could that work, too, but you have to have the right story for it. What if it's a Gamorrean? See? There you go. You should fix the whole problem. What if? <laughs> <laughs> it would be more just like... Somebody make that your ringtone, please. <laughs> I beg of thee. Oh, man. All right. So, oh, since geez. you already gave your number three, do you have more to say on, on Jack Black? I hope not, but go I'm, ahead. I'm just saying it's okay to have fun, Brandon. That's all I'm okay. saying. Okay. Well, I don't like fun, so. Um, ah, my, how the turntables have turned. <laughs> so, even though uh, I have the number two next, I want you to talk for a minute. So, go ahead with your number two. Okay. I was very concerned going into season three about how the scope of this show would expand and the lore would just get overwhelmingly dumb and that because you know like we talked about before season one very centralized localized story small business kind of thing season two expanded it in a much larger way where now suddenly we're talking about the jedi and thrawn and we're talking about luke and all kinds of things that weren't really a part of the original conversation around you know din's bounty hunting life and how he's going to learn to love again I think that the lore expansion in season three was done super duper well. Um, little things like X-Wings and Y-Wings flying at the uh, Adelphi outpost were really, really neat to see those characters themselves. Everybody in there, we got live action Zeb for the very first time, and it was done super tastefully. It wasn't like a big spotlight on it, like uh, the Spider-Man movies where all the the old Spider-Mans break in and there's this moment for applause that is really awkward when you're watching it and not in in a theater environment. Nothing felt really terribly forced or artificial in the way in which they introduce things. There's a little clunkiness in the Shadow Council conversation, like things like, what about Project Necromancer? Remember that? It's like, well, no, because you've never mentioned that before. But there's a Shadow Council, and we have heard about that before. And we know, and we see that Pelion is on it. And we see that um, Armitage Hux is a part of it. So like, there's a really cool expansion in this very specific way that feels extremely natural. Like, this is a thing we can absolutely envision these characters did on a regular basis. And so it, it eliminated kind of the force where like no one had to have like an episode about a Jedi in this season. We didn't have to have an episode about um, what happened to Moff Gideon when uh, he was brought to the New Republic. We get the little tidbits here and there. Clearly things are not right. We get it in the, the Coruscant episode where Elia Kane is, is more than what she seems and it's not hard to connect some dots and we get the you know the discovery of the busted tight, um, lambda class shuttle, which has these uh, ingrained bits of Beskar. So there's clearly something backwards going on here. So it felt like an easy and smooth progression throughout the entirety of the season, where they're like, "Yeah, we're going to tell you the story about how the Mandalorians retake their homeworld, but we're going to do it in such a way that's that is encircled by all this other interesting stuff that's happening at the same time. We're going to talk to you about." 
how the fact that the New Republic is getting started off on the wrong foot. We're going to talk about um, things like uh, breaking down chain of command and going outside of uh, regulated procedures and how that's going to be a problem. We're going to talk about how people like to live outside of the law, don't get the protection of the law at the same time. We're going to talk about Navarro and how, like, moving tracts of land is really something that they do. Like, they say, why isn't the rail car over here? It should be. So interesting ways in which they did that. And I loved that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and even to the point where you have um, the Swamp Thing Pirate King says... Gorian Shard. Pirate sure. King. Gorian Pirate Shard. King. You. There you go. See, he has a name. It's important. I remember the full name. it. You have to say the full thing. With the title, because otherwise yes. we won't remember. Clearly. Exactly. But he has like one throwaway line that's something like, the New Republic can't even protect the Midrim from the Pirate Nation. Okay, that has a lot of implication. The fact that there is a pirate nation, especially when a lot of us are like seven books deep in the Nihil right now. Like there's some interesting pot potential there when pirates aren't just these disjointed freeboaters. There's some kind of an organization and some kind of affiliation there. And they're not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's not important to the story that they're trying to tell. But that's a seed planted. That's To me, that line has the same kind of impact as... Um, you know, you fought in the Clone Wars. I was once a Jedi Knight like your father. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Yeah. Like, that's writing. That's cool. And that is a, a, an organic way to have a conversation that clearly leaves the listener, us as an audience, learn information that the characters themselves already knew. You know, Grief Karga already knew there was something called the Pirate Nation. And so did, uh, I've already forgotten his name, Shard. <clears throat> Pirate King Gorian Shard. There you go. Him too. God, they are both true. well aware of that information, but the way in which they 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 talk to each other brings us into the conversation. And I really like the way that they did that. And the, you know, the same thing with the Shadow Council it was a lot of fun to be like little bits and pieces of things. Some of it's important to the story, like oh, he, you're going to place an order for uh, replacement interceptors. That ties back to the beginning of season one or season three rather. That and he says, uh, you want three Praetorian guards. Okay, that ties us to the sequel trilogy, and it ties us to the next episode that comes up. And, uh, and then he go and Gideon goes, oh, and some tie bombers would be nice too. It's like, okay, we're going places now. This is interesting. So my that was my second favorite thing is is the way in which they were able to organically expand the universe without it being um, overbearing and outlandishly bad dialogue. I think they did it very, very well. I'm very happy with the way they did that. Well, and I, I think also they do a good job of, you know, building history between the characters without having to stick at things like, come on, we've known each other for 20 years or something yeah, exactly. like that. Like, yeah. you know that Grief Karga and Gorian Shard, Pirate King Gorian Shard, have <laughs> uh, dealt with each other before, It just in the way that they talk to each other, in the way that they... they kind of bounce off of each other uh you, you can tell the shadow council has met plenty of times and yes. that they all like you can tell that they all know they're lying to each other and yet they're <laughs> not going to tell each other that they're lying to each other so like all of this stuff is done without any dialogue specifically pointing it out right. and there's a subtlety to it that i think is really good and i think also uh you know 
you have these air quote throwaway lines and some of them are important and some of them aren't like the, the moving the tract of land, not super important to, to probably what we're going to get in the future, unless like that becomes a story in, in a future episode, but like on the surface, not that important, but then project necromancer, it's like, well, that is definitely going to be important because you know armitage hux is dealing with it and so it feels like a throwaway line of like we've got these other priorities but it also builds the lore so yeah right and they point to other things like you know if we go back to like rogue one when Jin is sifting through the secret projects of that that are housed in scarif she's looking and she sees star you know project stardust obviously that means something you know, the other ones do too. Like hyperspace tracking is mentioned there, and that links to the Last Jedi. Well, they they can't possibly attract us through hyperspace. Well, they just did. So, and and this is kind of like in the Shadow Council with Project Necromancer. Let's talk about naming conventions. Not a great way to name your super secret operations by calling it Necromancer. Clearly, we're trying to bring people back from the dead. <laughs> I mean, it's also wonder, not very good somehow, to call your space station the Death Star. I think, you know, in-universe, it probably should have been something like the Peace Moon, but whatever. We'll talk yeah. about that another day. Is it, there is another name for that in-universe. It's like Orbital Station 1. I, There's a I, proper name uh, in can. Hang on, this is all oh, in canon somebody. or in legends. Uh, uh to me, they'll always be royalty. Um, <laughs> holy okay. cow! I don't. Is it doesn't Lost Stars? No, Lost Stars specifically names it the Death Star, and they talk about that. Yeah, I mean, Shoot. you also have Star Destroyers, like. The Empire and its remnants doesn't do subtlety very well. Hang on. Those came from the Republic, thank you very much. A Venator-class Star Destroyer didn't exactly appear after, you know, the Empire came to rule. They didn't call them Star Destroyers in the Clone Wars. They were Venator-class ships. Yes. If you you didn't, like, scrub down, you know, look at the VIN number, it didn't link back to something like that? I'm pretty sure. I'd I'd have to check Kelly Blue Book, but... (laughs) What do you think the Blue Book value of a Venator-class Star Destroyer is 30 years afterwards? Mm. It's probably pretty good. Do you think those things held up? I was going to say, it depends on what shape, what kind of shape it's in. Like, Brandon, are we what's, talking... your favorite, what's your favorite class of Star Destroyer? The, the big one? <sighs> <laughs> how, how many Star Destroyer classes can you name off the top of your head? Ready? I know set, Star go. Destroyer, and I know Super <laughs> Star Destroyer. <laughs> Okay, okay, not bad. I'll give you that. That's that's good. All right. And I do like the Super Star Destroyer better. It's just sleeker, and it Those looks like cool. a knife that would stab you. Um, <laughs> a knife right. that would stab you. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's not doesn't look like a butter knife, you know? Like, it's, it doesn't have a... That's like, true. It does not look like a butter knife. So, you have that going Listen, for Listen, I'm on your side on this. The... The uh, Venator ships in Clone Wars, like, they've got, like, the squared-off end. They don't look very dangerous, very stabby. They don't always... They don't even feel that big to me. Because they, they've got, like, the hangar bay that's, like, wide open. Yeah. Or is it the Acclimator? I can't remember which one's which. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. I, it just always felt weird that you could just kind of fly in and out of those things. And it was like... I always got the impression that the Imper- the, like, the Star Destroyer, Star Destroyers, like, the Imperial class and the Victory class and all those guys were, like massive and i know that's kind of a bone of contention upon like the 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 starship freaks of the universe like the size discrepancies you know source material source material 
provides all kinds of different measurements. None of them line well, up. Well, we so. we are not here to measure sizes, Drew. So, oh, well, you know, it's it's how you use them, right? <laughs> it's how you use a star destroyer to impose imperial rule upon a planet like Jetta. You know. Well, speaking of how you use them, that leads into my number two, which well, is that's how they use transition. But okay, go for it. It's how they used Grogu because I <laughs> like that they gave Grogu some damn agency finally. Uh, uh, whew, he got a little hot in that one, coming in hot. Really, like, listen, we know, we both know that I love adorable meme Grogu, and who's just like True. cute, and he's there to motivate Din and all of that stuff. It has worked for me. I, I I've liked it so far, and personally, I don't think that it was stale yet. I know some people. I've heard a, a very small minority say, you know, that they kind of uh, were over that aspect of him. For me, it hadn't gotten stale yet. But that is why I like that they gave him some evolution, some character this season, because it didn't get stale. And mm. so we can still maintain that cute memeableness that, you know, sells the toys and also continue his story. And you, you're actually seeing him developmentally, even though the, the puppet doesn't necessarily look different, you know, he's he's gone from that newborn to that infant toddler kind of age. Uh, he just happens to have superpowers. And so I think there's more, there's more movement, there's more narrative, there's more character development here. Um, the, the use of IG-12 to give him a way to speak uh, was a great idea. Uh, I'm kind of sad they didn't continue it. I, I, I get, you know, that it probably would have gotten old quickly, but yeah. I really liked that. Um, I liked the fighting of the Praetorian guards, even though it does look at times kind of stop motiony. Uh, I'm okay with that. I, I like him saving Din on multiple occasions, twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just, it was, that was a surprise of the season for me. It might not be you know one of the top three best things about this season but i really thought that it deserved mention because the way that they did it i think was was being able to find that unique balance of okay we need to develop this character whose appeal is that he's cute and has force powers like how do we do that without losing the cuteness and and that sells toys right because at the end of the day like like they're thinking about that as much as we don't want to want sure. them to. They are thinking about that. Sure. But like, how do we not negate this cultural phenomenon that baby Yoda is, but also move his story along. And so I think it was funny. Cause I was talking with a friend, uh, you know, they were asking me about the baby Yoda versus Grogu thing. And I was like, well, the, the baby Yoda or the, the one that's on, I have a, a Tervis water bottle that's got like the cartoony kind of uh, Grogu. I'm like that's baby Yoda when it's like yeah. just a fun cartoon. And then when you have the actual puppet, it's Grogu. Like there's a distinction now that I don't think existed before this season mm. where you can have your cute one, but you also have your, uh, you know, one with some agency. And so I think the the biggest thing that's going to be a challenge going forward is that uh, at some point he has to grow up and speak for himself and everything like that. So I think this season with the way that it ended, if, if we build off the idea of like, this is the end of book one of the Mandalorian, we have a chance now to jump 
three, four, five years ahead. And we have no idea how this species ages, you know, like, yes, for 50 years, he's been very little, but maybe there's a growth spurt of three to five years where all of a sudden now he's the size of Yoda and he's like teenage Groot, but in a Yoda body. Like, mm. you, not necessarily that that would be the greatest way to execute it, but you get what I'm saying of there's a chance now that we've built that this is more than just a cute puppet to have around to motivate Din, and it's a character in and of itself to advance that story going forward. Yeah. There is a weird kind of, like, it's still very odd to see him move as much as he does. Like, the jumping around thing still is, like, very strange to watch to me. But I wonder, like you said about him growing up, because if if we know that Yoda lived to 900 years old, died an old man, and if we kind of, like, analogize that to the average length of a human being as we know it, you know, if we know an average human being is going to age to about between 77 and 83 years old, I mean, by comparison, Grogu should be, if at 50 years, again, if we're presuming that he follows the same aging path of a terrestrial human, he should be five or six or seven years old by now. So he's still in this baby phase when he really should be already past his toddler phase. And I think it would help just something as, something, something as small as him able to walk with a clear stride, you know, instead of being covered up by a potato sack, like let us n communicate to the audience that he can walk the way you would expect like a five, six, seven year old to be able to walk. Uh, just the way in which they're moving the puppet rather than letting the puppet move just feels weird still. Like every time he jumps, I'm like, they just threw it off screen to somebody. Like it just feels like they're they're not treating his movements as important enough yet, and that's always kind of like well, that's a little bothersome. I mean, overall, I think you're right with the character though. The way they've actually given him something to do has been good. Yeah, and and I like seeing him, you know, like finally get to save Din. And yeah, I like well, again. He's done it so many times now. It's like I did not yeah, enjoy but... seeing him fight and fight the Mando kid though in that one episode. That was yeah. weird. I wasn't wild it was, about that. <laughs> it wasn't. About that. It, it felt like child abuse. Um, a little bit. If we're being, if we're being honest. But I bit. think if, if you, I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, when uh, he is getting back down by the Praetorian guards and getting separated from Din, mm. there was a moment where I really went, are they actually going to kill him? Like, and I think oh, that's wow. because yeah, of how wow. they built the character over the season like it was a fleeting moment because I was like, sure. no, they're not going to no, kill baby. Yoda. They're not going to uh, kill a baby. But <laughs> a the fact show. that the fact that you had built him into this character that was not just a uh, a side character, you know, a, a, not just a porg where it's like, oh, yeah, he's just to sell cute toys. And you mm -hmm. made him a character who you could see sacrificing himself in a battle to save somebody that he loves, I think says a lot of, of what they did with the storytelling with him this season. Yeah, I'll give you that. I think it's good. All right, so what is your best thing about season three of The Mandalorian? So remember how we talked about how Mandalore as a planet was very confusing and uninspiring? Yes. We just talked let about us, that about ten minutes ago. Let us cast our minds to the wonders of Coruscant. And how absolutely uh, beautiful that planet is. Weird, scary, but there's something just... Everything that they're doing on Coruscant was really, really interesting to watch. Whether it was... Well, okay. Interesting to watch. Asterisk. We'll come back to the asterisk in a minute. 
But like, you know, the the flashback scene Grogu has to where he's escaping from the Jedi Temple and he's picked up by Keller and Beck uh, at the top of the elevator sequence. So good. Everything looks great. The planet looks great. The temple looks great. It felt it, it felt like the best version of Order 66 I've seen in a long time. And I am so sick and tired of seeing Order 66 that this was kind of, I think, the freshest of takes you could have on it. Like, it felt good, this particular one. But it, let's, so we got to get talk to the thing we haven't actually talked about yet is the third episode. Because... The, per, the convert tells is the name. The episode name is the convert, and this is the one that starts off with Din and Bo trying to flee Mandalore, being pursued by Imperial starfighters, and then it cuts to the longest interlude I have ever seen in my life. Um, <clears throat> I don't really care about the storytelling at the moment and what the story was trying to tell. I just wanted to think about and focus on how amazing the rest of it looked, like the. Uh, operatic scene where Parshing is giving his kind of explanation of what he'd been up to and what he's looking forward to do was just a wonder to watch. Um, the whole idea of an amnesty program where ex-imperials could find safe havens um, right at the heart of the New Republic in order to contribute to its its collective good is really fascinating. Like That's an interesting idea. And then even the the cubicles that they work in. We've kind of spent some time in Andor watching, um, I think it was Serial Karn, right? Uh, as he goes and tries to get a day job and, and, and looking at the difference between those two things is fascinating. We get the New Republic uh, military offices. We get a lot of stuff that tells us a lot about the planet of Coruscant. And it's so interesting to see everything that goes on in that world. This is kind of, it's the complete opposite of Mandalore. We get a cohesive picture of what this planet is and, and its role in the story. You know, it's the home to the Jedi and it watched them fail. It was the home to the Empire for a while and watched it die. It was it's home to the New Republic. It was home to Dr. Parshing. It's this it's it's all this whole season three has been all about home and how Mandalorians are gonna go back to their own. But there's something about the government, you know, not the government, but the galaxy's home planet, really, of Coruscant. And I love that it's getting some time to shine in this show. It, it's just so much fun to watch. And and one thing that stood out was really interesting to kind of think about for more than the 30 seconds that the show gives it. When Din goes back to Navarro and brings the whole Mandalorian crew with him, like all the ships, and Grief Cargo walks out to meet him, he says, I brought this for you as a gift. It's you know some kind of uh, Coruscant spirits. He came all the way from Coruscant. And if you think about that for a second, like... Nothing grows on Coruscant. So this had to be a very special thing. There's no soil. There's no natural landmass left for Coruscant. The whole planet, except for tiny little bits of the ice caps, has been completely turned into machinery or concrete or steel. And so to have something that's real and natural and organic, presuming, you know, to come from Coruscant like that is really a true gesture that I think Cargo is trying to make there. And and the show skips right over it. And it's fine to do because it doesn't really matter. But Coruscant really got some time to shine in the spotlight this year. And I was real. I'm there for it, man. I was all about it. And I mean, you were spot on. It looks so good. It looks like it just visually looks awesome. And again, 
not it's, the greatest tools to describe it, but what, what, do, what, what do you think? Well, no, but I think when we're, like, when we're comparing it to the prequels, right, because that's where we see it the most, like, those movies are, st- the CGI in those is still really good. Um, I think it holds up, but holding up and holding a candle to what we have yeah. now are not necessarily the same thing. And yeah, I, I really, it's gotten a focus more in, in the television series. You know, we got time with it on Andor. We got time with it in Kenobi. We got time with it mm-hmm. here. I know a lot of people had issues with, Oh, we went off on this Pershing episode that could have, you know, been a short five minute, 10 minute side plot in another <laughs> episode. I loved it. I loved really? everything about it. I really loved the whole episode. It was a lot of fun. Like, I, I was really questioning the whole time whether Elias Kane was was a, tra- uh, a traitor or not, uh, a spy or not. I was fascinated by how Pershing was just so apprehensive to follow, but he just knew he needed to. Like, that, curi- that curiosity where you just have to poke the bear... Uh, was really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the whole thing just worked really well. The going to see the the top of the mountain, which I don't know if you remember this, we also see cool. in Light of the Jedi. Um, yeah, that, there's yeah, yep. That was pretty cool. So it was just that was fun. It was nice to have like, you know, you talked about the the visual connection and everything like that, but it's nice to just have the connections that that allows to other stories you know like yeah. we like two light of the jedi uh keller and beck's character in um it, actually i don't know if you know this i haven't watched the show but it comes from that youtube show that um yeah the jedi he Temple did, thing trials. right where he his like jedi character is like t- responsible for the younglings so that's kind yeah. of the the backstory for him there. And they brought that over, even though, you know, that's obviously not like a canon thing, but it's just cool that you took this foundational element of, uh, you know, star Wars in the prequel era. You brought it to the post return of the Jedi era, made it important, linked all these other things to it. And also just told a really compelling story about a guy who was on the wrong side of a losing war trying to right his wrongs but who's still pulled to finding the answers to the questions he was asking in the first place mm-hmm. i i loved it like it's one of my uh, yeah, favorite I'm, episodes of the season I, i'm struggling the, the balance between not liking dr parshing as a character like he's not a good person because of like you said like he was more interested in the science and was less interested in in what it was being used for and he was falling into the same trap you know you know, while in the amnesty program, he was more interested in getting his work done than he was actually trying to understand who he was working for. And so he's he was kind of like a not he's not really sympathetic in that because he's making his own decisions. He's just misguided. He's just got it wrong. He's not paying yeah. enough attention, and and that leads to his down his eventual downfall. But man, does it paint the New Republic's tolerance for that kind of stuff in an awful, awful picture? And so it's hard for me to to, to struggle between. Yeah, he's not uh, he's not somebody you want to give a lot of access to information. He's not somebody you want to trust with the keys to the store. But at the same time, was memory wiping really the the proper uh, response to what he had done? Is like what is going on? Yeah, I, I hope like that's, that's not the end probably, of his story. Well, that's probably the end of his story because he has no brain left. The the implication there is he's completely fried. 
Like, but I'm hoping that's left. not the end of his story that we find. Like, yes, I, I get what you're I, saying. I think, of that ends his pursuits, but right. I want him to make a reappearance in the series. I don't know. I'm, I think that this got the strongest vibes of like we're taking material that we wanted to use in the Rangers of the New Republic, and this is where we're going to do it. Was this and the Gorian Shard stuff? Pirate, excuse me, excuse me, Mister Pirate King Gorian Shard. That's Sir Pirate King Gorian Shard. Sir the Third. We don't want to disrespect his family lineage. Um, we're all about it, I guess. But like, I don't, I don't think we'll see it come back. It's very, very hard to say because, on the one hand, it's interesting what it tells us about the New Republic. And that its amnesty program only goes so far. But I mean, like, it should only go so far as well. But is that really where it should go? Like, is that the line? Is like, is, and it's very difficult to tell because there's a lot of, it raises a lot of questions um, that the show is probably not interested in asking. Like, what is the real offense of breaking into a decommissioned Star Destroyer and trying to sneak out parts? Does it make a difference that he was trying to sneak out like lab experiment equipment versus, I don't know, a turbo laser battery? I, like, d- does any of that matter to them? I, I genuinely don't know because breaking and entering is breaking and entering, but there's additional crimes you commit that make certain worse, so, certain offenses worse than others. So I don't know enough about, and again, this is probably like for me and two other people on the planet, like not knowing enough about their criminal code and what matters to the New Republic and not is is a challenging question especially when i don't know is it a one strike and you're out rule in the amnesty program they they don't seem to be living in constant fear for their safety and security at least the impression that parshing's first visit with the other amnesty program members seem to be very cordial very loose very friendly they're out they're having a good time they're getting to know each other you don't get the sense of like we are being watched if they use it more, I don't think it'll be something on screen. I imagine there'll be like a, a part of a, a novel or a story that takes place in this time period that would that would probably be more interesting to dive into. And I like the connections to, you know, post-World War II Nazis and mm-hmm. post-Cold War Russians of, you know, we saw a place where we could take some of their skills and use it for our own means and they're doing that in the amnesty program. Uh, but also when you think about, you know, JJ Abrams talking about the first order being, you know, what happens if the Nazis go to South America and rebuild and come back, you know? And so I think there's a, a narrative thread that connects there. Um, and I think that it's a historically, uh, you know, those programs that we provided, you know, what are their consequences today? You know, we, we see a uh, rise of these, you know, neo-Nazi groups and things like that. And it's like, okay, does it connect back to that? I don't, I'm not a historian enough to say yeah. whether it does or not, you know, DeVore would probably be better to answer that kind of question. <laughs> but I just, the fact that we can even ask those questions, uh, I think is really interesting. And it, it's really nice to see them, 
whether consciously or unconsciously, taking ideas that inspired one aspect of a, a film, you know, that happened 10 years, eight years ago, whenever it came out to a show now it, and build that connective tissue, but also relate it to our real world to give us grounding yeah. and context to it. I think it's just, it, it's a beautiful execution of, of storytelling there. So, yeah, I, I'll give you that. I just, it's, it's just, to me, it's one of those things like this, the show is not interested in answering those kinds of questions at this time. This is kind of what we talked about last time with Yumi and divorce. Like the show is not, 18 miles deep and it's it's trying to explain and ask you to question certain elements of human morality some of them yeah but maybe not criminal conduct and, and the application of international law on a galactic scale but it's nice to try and, and 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 look for those kinds of things as long as we don't let those things get in the way of what the story is actually trying to tell us like that's just kind of my my word of caution is always look for the forest and then enjoy the trees <laughs> yeah yeah, I think that's valid. So, uh, speaking of forest and trees, they all work for me with my number one, which was okay. I wanted to just say the last two episodes because the spies and the return are so freaking amazing. Uh, but I felt like that in and of itself was just a cop out. So I'm saying the Clone Warsiness of the final battle. Uh, oh, okay. Because like. You, you know, and, and listeners know, I love Clone Wars for, for so many reasons. But one of the things it gave us was so many battles that we never thought we'd get to see in live action, you know, uh, particularly with the Mandalorians. And that's just not true anymore. The uh, air battle between the Mandalorians and the Stormtroopers is, it, it's got Clone Wars written all over it. It's a good point. It, it just... It literally felt like they had taken a Clone Wars episode and just remade it in live action. Like, that's how close to being what we saw in Rebels and Clone Wars it was. Uh, the moment of Bo igniting the Darksaber with the armor by her side, uh, especially after a week of speculation about whether she was a traitor or not, um, <laughs> is possibly my favorite shot of the whole season. Uh, it's definitely in my top five for the whole show. Oh, wow. uh, the end battle with Gideon... Uh, harken back to Mandalorian fights we saw in the Clone Wars uh, and in Rebels. Uh, I, I got a lot of vibes of uh, the battle with Sabine as she's destroying her uh, Beskar bla uh, blaster thing that she made uh, in Rebels. Uh, got a lot of that feeling to it there of like the very survival of our, our culture is on the line here. Uh, it just all worked really, really well for me. And I hope Moff Gideon stays dead because I think that that was mm. a really amazing end to his character and to that arc. The shot of, of Grogu holding back the fire uh, as he protects his mom and dad, fantastic. Love that. Uh, and just really, I, I like seeing Dave Filoni's influence coming over from the Clone Wars uh, into what the Mandalorian is going to be like. Yes, he didn't direct these episodes, but you know his his hand is in all of these things. Uh, Favreau's hand is in all of these things, and and they came from Clone Wars and they came from Rebels, and so it's nice to see that that's coming forward. So that when we get this culminating movie and we look at all of the story of the Mandalorians as a whole, it's going to feel like one complete narrative. And to me, the way that it was shot, the action in and of itself, 
the story that they told through it, all of it worked on every single level. And uh, I think it, it worked to make the show better. The excuse me, the episodes better individually, the show better as a whole, and the narrative better across all of these shows that we've gotten. And it makes me very optimistic for what we're going to be able to get in the future that they can pull these things off visually. And it mm. feels there's not a moment where it feels like, hey, I'm watching a bunch of CGI characters, not once. And oh, that's even an interesting idea. Yeah. Even in, you know, like I, I went and watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3 today. There are moments in there where you go, that's a CGI character, and you can't unsee that it's a CGI character. Interesting. Here, there's not a, a single moment of that happening. Hmm. And there's, to me, like, there's probably almost no real sets happening there when you have all these Mandalorians flying through. Like, you maybe have a couple shots where it's actually, you know, Katie Sackhoff and Emily Swallow in the, the suits or whatever, hanging from strings. But it's mostly CGI, and it just looks so seamless. I'll, I'll give you that. It does look really good. I, I, my only particular grief, if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, is is two different things. One, there are way too many shots of, of Mandalorians dropping out of uh, the dropships in this show. Every time you put them in the, sh- in, the, in the ship, you have to, s- some for some reason, everybody has to exit the vehicle through the little drop dropout portion. They go sit in the buckets, and it drops them out, and they get to fly away. Too many of those shots. Stop using that shot. Second thing, um, also, oh, no, actually, before we go on to the second thing, tying into that, the one time when they land on Mandalore, they all jump out of the ship, the... the, this, the uh, advance party before they bring the settlers down. So this is like when Bo-Katan and Axe Woves and Paz Vizsla first arrive on the scene. When they actually land, you're like, oh, this is that was a rough pass. We should have done another one of these shots again, guys. It's a little bit janky. Also, but so onto the second thing. I'm so sick and tired of the let's attach the camera to the thing as it flies around uh, point of view. You know, we saw this a lot in Rogue One where they seemed like they'd put the camera on the wing of a starfighter and fly the starfighter through the action. And you're like, you see like the wing and you see the astromech droid. They're still in the shot. And then the whole battle spins around them. Um, think about like when Axe Woves flies off of Mandalore to go up to the spaceship or to their flagship, or I don't even know if it has a name yet. Let's keep in mind that they can fly in space. Evidently now I didn't know that was a thing, but like the shot of him flying through the clouds where you can clearly tell it's the shot where there's a, a, a pole strapped to his back that goes in front of his head and the camera's mounted on the front of his head. So his helmet is huge and his body is kind of slightly wiggling behind him as he flies. Like we don't need any more of those guys. We're done with that shot camera shot. Can we just retire that please? Do you have any other honorable mentions or or last parting thoughts as we bid adieu to season three? Uh, I mean, God, there's so much good stuff in this season. This was a really hard list to, to make, honestly. So I okay. kind of just, I didn't get too critical with it. I went with my gut. Uh, the one that just stands out to me is, is uh, Ahmed Best making his return as Keller and Beck. That was Very satisfying. Shocking. Very cool. It was satisfying in so many ways. Uh, it was really nice to not have it be somebody that we already knew come save Grogu. Like, I I hated the idea of it being Anakin coming. I know people have thrown oh, that, that out. that would have been terrible. Wow. Um, how would that work? Yeah, people were like, oh, he had a moment of empathy for Grogu and let him go. And He murdered kids in the council chamber. I, I, <laughs> I'm, we are in agreement. The internet is not dumb. Agree- what is wrong with the people? Um, 
I, you know, I didn't want sequence? it to be like a Obi-Wan had a quick five-minute side mission over here. Oh, or, gosh. Like, oh, I didn't so want bad. anything like that. Uh, I even, and this might shock you, I think it would have been a terrible idea to even have Ahsoka come in and do it. Like, it needed to be somebody that we weren't familiar with, but that we, as a fandom, would be invested in. And mm. with, you know, Ahmed Best and... and his admissions of how you know his treatment after the prequels affected him mentally and things like that, and the fandom really uh, readopting him, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and you know people of the prequel generation uh, who were kids then really saying like we weren't the ones that hated you, like we we appreciate what you did for yeah. the story and everything like that, and, and and even if you know I I know. A lot of people still don't like Jar Jar, and that's totally valid. But the fact that they've been able to grow and say, you know, we respect you as a human being, and then hit him <laughs> wanting to come back. Isn't that sad that that's the bar? Uh, but right. then him wanting that's to come back. That's what I was back. thinking of. Yeah. And, and to do so in such a big way to answer a question that we had been asking for so long, uh, I think was, was really great. And I think. Mm-hmm. It op- it sets up in the future where if you want to tell stories with Kelleran and Grogu together, you yeah. can, but you there. don't have to. It's satisfying as is. Um, I want to know who the Naboo ship is from, but other than that, like I think it's <laughs> it's really satisfying what it is. So that would be the only other thing I would mention. Cool. Um, I, we already kind of went through a lot of my honorable mentions. Um, the one thing that stuck out to me is that. Din refers to his his ship as the N one starfighter, like he has to get back to the N one. He doesn't give it a name, like the Razor Crest had a name. I was always confused on that because I think the Razor Crest was the type of ship. Because there are uh. times, there are times when they talk about it. You want another Razor Crest, and 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 in Book of Boba Fett, he says to Pelimato, like I wanted another Razor Crest. Yeah, but you could say that in the same way that Han would say, I want another Millennium Falcon. Like, you're looking to replace... But um, but well, you could also say it as that being the type of ship. I think it's actually both. I think it is the name of his ship, but it's also... I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it real quick on Wikipedia because, you know, that's definitely the answer for things. The Razorcrest was an ST-70 class Razorcrest M111 assault ship. So it is both the name and the model. What if he goes High Republic route and names his ship after himself like Lorna D? And so it's just, <laughs> I got to get back to the Din Djarin. The what? <laughs> and Grogu's just over there shaking his head. He's got his little puppet head in his hands. I, you know, Din is the last person to know he's in a Star Wars movie. He has no idea what happens in Star Wars. So it is not unreasonable. He could name it both the N1 and after himself. Oh, no, that's really... I don't like that. It feels bad, but I think it's accurate. <laughs> so that's a dishonorable well, I just, mention there. I was, I was just noticing that, like, you know, Star Wars seems to be doing a, a weird thing of, like, changing the way in which we describe ships. Like, it's not... even it, It's dumb, but, it, it, like, in the Lego sets, it's not Luke... It's not Red 5 now. It's Luke Skywalker's X-Wing. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of a strange, you know, and I know the, the thing with Slave One, we don't call it Slave One anymore. We call it Boba Fett Starship. And I think that is a fair trade to make. I just don't understand why we're doing it for the other other things. Um, 
but for the lack of creativity of the naming conventions of their pilots. And that would fit squarely in the column for Din, who has no idea how things work. So naming his N1 Starfighter, the N1 Starfighter, is totally par for his particular course. (laughs) This poor guy has the creative imaginations of, I don't know what, a block of wood or something, because Homeboy needs to do some research. He needs to paint up his uh, his armor, because like, Everybody you don't else like had the shiny painted. chromium? No, I do. I'm just kidding. But everybody oh, okay, else had good. painted armor, and it. Did you see the thing about the 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 Mando kid who has the helmet that's like open on the back? Yes, there's actually a reason that? for that. Yes, it's so cool. Can you yeah. explain? I so, think it's the greatest thing. I was a big fan of this. So a lot of people were uh, dogging on. Uh, the Mandalorian helmet being open in the back for this young child actor, or there was one that was, uh, looked kind of like it was a cloth in the back that was kind of pinched mm-hmm. together or whatever. And had, like very strong Halloween mask you got from Walmart last year. Bob. Yes. Yeah. And people were making that joke. Like when you order your Mandalorian, yes. uh, costume on from wish. Wish. <laughs> and one of the, uh, creators, I don't remember specifically who came out and said, uh, we had special needs kids on there who had sensory issues with some of the costumes. So we adjusted mm-hmm. them to the needs of the kid. And I'm just like, that's super you, cool. If you didn't like Star Wars already, like the fact that they put their needs in front of, you know, like what would it fit in the story? Just it's it's peak. It's peak what Star Wars should be about. So that'll wrap us up. And uh, Drew, we will be talking about something I know you're excited about next time. Star Wars Visions. Mm. So you got to get on finishing that. Man, uh, I'm, I'm going through it slowly. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, savoring it. it bit by bit because the first couple that I've seen, some of the most interesting storytelling we've, we've had yet. So if people want to see your thoughts on that or your thoughts on anything else in the Star Wars world, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at the Drew Brett. Um, I am hoping to finish and put out an actual article on the website, clashingsabers.net about Utini's March Madness, where they, they polled and ranked the 64 most popular novels in the Star Wars world and had them battle it out to figure out which one would be the best, the most highly supported. And it was a fascinating process to watch. So I've got about 2000 words on that coming your way soon. Awesome. And also over on ClassicsNeighbors.net, you can find our page to nominate a teacher to get some books from our nonprofit. I've got a lot of books sitting waiting for uh, some good kids to to read. And so whether you know somebody in a rural area, urban area, whether you just Google search elementary schools or middle schools or high schools near you, uh, we have books for them. Yeah. The school you went to as a kid. Yeah is probably still there and someone still teaches fourth grade yeah. get their name and mailing address and we will send them free books this is not <laughs> it's like, yeah that's the thing it's it's not a contest not a scam no right, this right. is literally a challenge <laughs> we will just find a teacher send us their information uh and and we will we will send books to them and we've had you know such amazing things happen because of that you know like uh, Amanda got brought into the network because we yeah. supported her classroom. Like it, it's 
it's really doing a lot of a lot of good stuff. So uh, as we kind of wrap up this year and lead into to next school year, you know, get me those names so that we can start off their year right with giving them some really exciting reading material uh, for the students to work with. And I know every district I've worked at uh, starts with fiction at the beginning of the year for for reading teachers. So if we can mm-hmm. get those Star Wars books to them early, it becomes authentic stuff that they can read and utilize and as everybody listening to the show knows star wars gives you all kinds of of uh, narratives with which to work so uh if you want to stay in touch with us other than that uh you can join our patreon which amanda speaking of and i were working on today some cool new shows that are going to be coming out on there and you can follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at clashing sabers so until next time uh, we just got to remember that uh the next big challenger for the throne of Mandalore is not going to be some guy named Thrawn or a returning Darth Maul with, with, I don't know, lion legs. (laughs) Now it's, it's going to be the greatest force in the galaxy, which is batch eight. Bad baby. No squeezy. (laughs) That's my favorite line in the whole show. Our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy. What are we? What do we stand for? Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way be lost. I'm going to Mandalore so that I may be forgiven for my transgressions. May the force be with you! This is the way. something dangerous happening out there and by the time it becomes big enough for you to act it'll be too late hang on kid This is the way.